you know, even with Harper Lee, I knew I'd be writing about this one case, but look, you get to tell the story of Mockingbird and In Cold Blood and the kind of afterlife of a literary celebrity who doesn't know how to handle that. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have New York Times bestselling author Casey Sepp. Her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, has received praise from such notable outlets as Time, the New York Review of Books, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, just to name a few. Casey brings to life the incredible account of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, a man who murdered five people only to be killed at the funeral of his last victim. This story was meant to be Harper Lee's In Cold Blood, but that wasn't to be. Welcome to the podcast, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, I think one of the things that so captivated me when I started reading Furious Hours is this notion of finding having an author like Harper Lee and then knowing that there's this other piece that's hanging out there and then chasing that story down. And I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about finding out that there was this manuscript and then kind of running off to to go find it. Yeah, I think the kind of writerly moral of my book is always look for the story behind the story. And I got sent down to Alabama to write a story about Harper Lee and her second novel, Ghost at a Watchman. And when I was investigating that book and the provenance of that manuscript and the story of kind of the end of her life, I learned about this other book she had tried to write in the 70s and 80s. And it was this incredible true crime story. And it made sense. I mean, on the one hand, it was unbelievable, both the kind of story she was investigating and the fact that Harper Lee, the little woman who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, would be undertaking this true crime project. But it made sense because she had helped Capote with In Cold Blood. And it made sense because, you know, the story was big news in Alabama. She would have heard about it. Um, but to your point, I thought the most exciting thing was writing about the Reverend Maxwell and his life and death would let me share this other side of Harper Lee. And even though someone is incredibly famous, and even though we think we know everything about them, it's often the case we know very little. And, you know, the, the joy of the Maxwell story um, was not only the kind of intrinsic interestingness of the case and the lawyers involved and the the actual kind of true crime story, um, it was the biographical bits of Harper Lee's life that I could bring to life. And that even people who had read To Kill a Mockingbird every year for the last 40 years would learn something about her. And even people who thought, you know, I've read a biography, I know everything there is to know, would learn something else. I think it's fascinating that, I mean, I guess just like Trubin Capote, you went down on one story and came back, and came back with another story. Um, yeah, God bless the patient <laughs> editors who, you know, you're supposed to write, you know, 1,200 words, and right away I say, well, I want to write 2,500 about Goes to Washington, and by the way, I want to write a second article because I found out about this other story, and then write, like, oh, by the way, I'm going to turn those into a book. So, yeah, it's very, very astute reader. I hadn't quite put that together, but, yeah, the long tradition of people writing for The New Yorker and deciding to write a heck of a lot more than they were assigned to. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And, well... And there was there's a there is a patience that you have to ask for them. So there you, you have to have their confidence already, I think, to be able to mm. say, Hey, you know, I know that you don't know for sure that I'm gonna do this, but I know for sure that I'm gonna do this. Yeah, both with editors and subjects. And I'll tell you, um, 
on the one hand, it was really exciting some days to feel like I was walking in Harper Lee's footsteps mm. and picking up where she had left off. But there were a lot of people who lived through these murders and who expected her to write a book who understandably um, were leery of another journalist who came to write a book she might not finish. And this is my first book, so you know, God bless the people who just decided they were going to risk it. You know, here was the writer from Maryland who had never written a book who was like, I'm writing a book about you, your life, your town, everything that's meaningful to you, the story of this region, you know, the complicated political history of Alabama. And one fine answer would have been, yeah, sure, good luck with that. Right. Um, but a lot of people, in fact, said, okay, and let's talk and come back when you know more. Or, you know, maybe we had a provisional conversation at first, but a year later when I had you know, more original sources or someone else who could be a kind of emissary on my behalf, they would then talk. And that was especially true with Harper Lee. Friends and family of hers who had very reasonably decided first because she had prohibited them from talking about her. And then even once she had passed, were just incredibly protective of her life and her mm. legacy. Um, it, it took some convincing and it took some patience. And, you know, I, I hope they feel like on the other side it was worth it, but I really, you know, I just feel for the people who thought Harper Lee was going to write a book about them and instead they got Casey Sapp. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially if you're an Alabamian and you think, you know, the state's best writer has, like, come to tell the story of your hometown and, you know, instead you get the nobody from Maryland. But um, I, I hope on the other side it's at least a book between two covers. You know, it's mm. not hers and it's probably nowhere near as good as the one she would have written, but um, it is at least done and in the world. So, Well, I think yeah. it's interesting, you know, Shin, you, you mentioned you know, a book between two covers, but this is really kind of two books. Mm. I mean, really, between two covers. I mean, you you certainly give us Reverend Willie Maxwell and everything that happened there with the life insurance and, you know, voodoo, and you do this massive amount of research sort of capturing the flavor of what that, the murders and the trial, but then also there's this other part about, you know, why we didn't get this book from, from Harper Lee, and so I feel like, you know, that, you know, as a, as a writer myself, I'm looking at that, I'm like, that is a Herculean task to think that, you know, to approach both Harper Lee's book, but also to say, you're going to sort of, this two-pronged approach just seemed just massive. It's very kind of you to phrase it that way, because the other way of saying it is, it's a book that, that is a little, a little bit promiscuous. It could be a true crime book, but instead it's true crime and literary biography and a little bit of political history and a little bit of financial history. And the nice thing for me about this book, and you know, I've been writing for a long time and doing longer articles and things, but this was really the first story that felt like it wanted to be a book. It was so complicated. It had so many kind of embedded stories, not just a lot of characters. You know, we've talked about Willie Maxwell, but his lawyer was a very interesting figure and, you know, a liberal Kennedy Democrat during the Wallace years of Alabama's history. And, you know, even with Harper Lee, I knew I'd be writing about this one case, but look, you get to tell the story of Mockingbird and In Cold Blood and the kind of afterlife of a literary celebrity who doesn't know how to handle that. So there was so much that I knew I wanted to include, and it felt like, well, the book can't be a straightforward biography of her, because that's not capacious enough. And it can't only be true crime, because the truth is I'm a little squeamish about true crime, and I, I never wanted it to just be a murder story. Um, and then with the political stuff, it's just how could you say no? You know, you get this larger-than-life character, and it's easy for me to see why she wanted to write about the lawyer at the heart of the book and why she wanted to write about the Reverend Maxwell. And, you know, I thought the book needed to do a couple different things at once. 
Um, so I'm going to hire you as the publicist to just say it's two books in one, not you know <laughs> the disgruntled reader who's like, I thought I was getting a murder story, but then it turns out it's like you know a literary biography. And you know I hope that readers who come for different things stick it out through the rest. Because there's also a kind of reader who's like, I just want to know about Harper Lee. She's the famous person. Why do I have to learn about a murderer? Why do I have to learn about a lawyer? And if you're just in it for Harper Lee, I think that you can really understand her if you know the original story. And you can see what was hard for her when she was working on her book. And you can see, you know, we're talking about Capote, you can see what's extraordinary about In Cold Blood. You know, for all of its transgressiveness and the kind of ethical questions, it's also just a beautiful book that came together from some complicated reporting. Um, so I like the idea. Two books in one sounds better than my, like, eh, it's a book that doesn't know what it is. <laughs> well, I will, I will take that, and I'll put that on my resume. There you um. go. <laughs> yeah, publicist, book publicist. I like it. When you were talking earlier about, you know, finding the sources and saying, hi, you don't know me, but I want to write about you, um, there has to be, like, a time, because you also don't really know what the story's about at the time. Like, what's the book about? I'm like, well, yeah. let's talk first. <laughs> and in a year, maybe right. I'll figure it out. Do you remember, like, kind of when it started to gel and you had that, now I, now I know what it's about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I think it relates to this conversation about Harper Lee because a writer's self-knowledge is sometimes elusive. What kind of writer they want to be, what kind of writer they are, what the culture needs them to be. I don't think Harper Lee understood really what was going on when she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think part of the reason she was stymied after it came out was just her astonishment at what the culture thought that book was about and, and the need it filled in our conversation about civil rights and difference. But um, the truth is I knew the structure of my book when I decided it was a book. So I knew it was going to be these three parts and it would be these three characters. So from the beginning, I could at least tell people in good faith, it's about all three. <laughs> you know, and if, and if I was if I was interviewing a friend of Harper Lee's, I think it was psychologically reassuring for them to realize, you know, here they were worried about sharing stories about her drinking or her depression, but I could tell them, you know, there's a serial killer in this book. She's never going to look as bad as that guy. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you, we're just laughing, but, you know, if you had known the Reverend Maxwell or you were coming from within the African-American community, you knew that it wasn't going to be a sensational true crime book. It was going to be embedded in a bigger story about the South and about how we tell stories and how history is passed along in sometimes biased or sometimes you know, ennobling ways. And so it's actually really reassuring, I think, to the different constituencies who I was interviewing to know that they were contributing part of a story. But you're certainly right. There are people who, you know, the first time I interviewed them, I didn't know nothing from nothing. And then I came back and said, <laughs> you know, actually, now I know your second cousin to so-and-so. And, you know, you pretended you never really met Harper Lee, but I have reason to believe you have 30 years worth of letters from her. So can we talk about that? Um, so there was some, and that's what's nice about a book as opposed to a newspaper article. You can come back. And especially when someone's a no year one, a no year two, and then year three, you can say, you know, I just want to ask one more time. And moreover, I want to tell you the other 10 people I've interviewed who told me it's okay to mention them and who felt it would give you permission to share something you've been nervous about. Um, so I was, I was really glad. And, you know, I, I just want to be clear, there were still some people who never talked. Mm. And it wasn't because I didn't have a cogent vision of my book. It was they didn't want to talk. Right. Um, you know, grievous to me. I feel like I'm a nice person. Everyone should talk to me. But um, and and indeed, a lot of people did. So there's just a tremendous amount of reporting and sourcing in the book. But um, 
yeah, there are still a few people who never change their mind. And I think that's part of the nature of true crime, too, is that it's, it's a delicate subject to say, I mean, the stories are inherently interesting, but also there's this walk that you have to do about being sensitive to, I mean, you know, what may be a story to me, this is actually someone's brother's, someone's brother, someone's sister, someone's daughter, and cousins, and so I think that, you know, there is a sensitivity that, you know, happens within true crime that, you know, whether it's Harper Lee trying to figure out, you know, how she wants to navigate that, or whether it's even you in, you know, in approaching people, I would imagine, you know, with true crime, I think that is something that has to be sort of in the, at least somewhere in, in, in the landscape of your mind. Sure, and Tony, you phrased that question kind of in relationship to Capote and Lee, and I just think there's no better illustration of that kind of journalistic tightrope than what happened when Lee and Capote went to Kansas. And we all now know what happened is Truman Capote scared the heck out of people, and they thought he was like a Martian who would right. come from outer space. <laughs> and he went around saying incredibly rude things to people about how you know, he didn't care if the murders were solved. He just wanted to know, you know how they felt. And you can imagine in a small town when there has been just a horrific act of violence that has left people terrified and traumatized, nothing is more meaningful at that moment than the possibility there will be justice. Mm. And so there was Harper Lee who could come along and kind of soften the impression he made and say, actually, we care very much about your lives and about the loss of your friends and who could be sensitive and knowing about the dynamics of that town and incredibly forthright about the difference between a story as it's written down in a book and the, the stories we live. And to your point, Stephanie, just of, of how emotional those can be and what different roles we can play at them at different times. And so I, I really think it's only thanks to her that we, we have in Cold Blood because there are so many people who would not have opened up. And part of the beauty and the kind of depth of that book is the emotional honesty you get from all sides. And Capote had access and insights into the killers in ways that she didn't, but I really don't think we would have come to know Holcomb or Garden City the way we do if, if she hadn't been there. Well, and it's also because she was um, engaged, just not, not, just, not just making people feel comfortable, but sure. she, her, she was being interested. She wasn't, she wasn't giving me this information because I want it. Yeah. She was like, I, I need to understand in a way that I don't understand just yet. And I think a lot of times when you're doing this kind of reporting, um, the curiosity gets people engaged in a way that the flat question won't. Like, let's yeah. just talk about this. Let's, let's flesh this out among us so that way I get a better understanding. When, when I'm interviewing people, it's one of the things I say. I, I might ask you the same question three or four times, but it's not that I don't trust you. It's just when I repeat it, I want to repeat it correctly. Right. I want to give the best account that I can, and I wasn't there, so you have to help me. Yeah, and she was certainly socially sophisticated, I think, in ways Capote wasn't. At one point when he was talking to George Plimpton, the editor of the Paris Review, about In Cold Blood, George Plimpton asked him about Nell Harper Lee, his childhood friend, and first of all, he used this incredibly condescending term, his assistant researchist is what he <laughs> called her. Um, but he also said, you know, quote, she was helpful with some of the wives. Look, the wives were sources, <laughs> and the wives were conduits to some of the law enforcement officers who became central to the book. And so she was socially astute in ways that he wasn't, but to your point, Tony, she also appreciated the kind of dynamism of identity. So some people weren't just 
related to the murder victims or neighbors of the murder victims, they were also high school students or 4-Hers or you know, fellow churchgoers. And I think that is the kind of deep knowledge she brought to that town um, that you can't fake. And it doesn't mean you can't report on communities that are different than yours. Look, people go, you know, write international journalism right. and they, they write historical journalism about places they'll never go and people they'll never meet because they're civilizations that have ended. But I think when she went to Kansas, it was real life to her in a way that for Capote, it was always a story. Um, now here we are kind of, you know, reveling in that. I think it's part of what made the book she tried to write about the Reverend Willie Maxwell difficult both because she didn't have as much access to certain kinds of lives, namely the, the African-American characters who would have been in the book, but also because she was too involved. And right. she couldn't pull back in the kind of journalistic way of, you know, Capote made decisions about narrative that meant he could finish his book. And I think she struggled to make those same kinds of distinctions and to smooth over the kind of inadequacies of fact or ambiguities of character. And that's where she would say Capote took liberties. The rest of us would say he met his deadline. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he finished the book. <laughs> I, I wonder if, just, just, as you, just as you said, he's, um, he doesn't care about, like, she, she cares about the characters. Yeah. He cares about the story. Sure. And so just as, just as when he said, well, I don't, I don't care if we find the killer. I, I care if I get the story. She wants to... She wants to still be able to show her face in town. Like Truman Capote knew he wasn't going back to Kansas. Right? Yeah, and I think part of that, again, here she is. So she got interested in the Maxwell case right after the Reverend Maxwell was gunned down by vigilantes. So in the summer of 77, she found out about it. So for 17 years, she had been living with the kind of complicated legacy of her own book about a real place. So To Kill a Mockingbird is a novel. Um, but it's an incredibly autobiographical novel. And from the day it was published, people in Monroeville, Alabama said, make them as Monroeville. That's me, that's my mother, that's my uncle, that's my brother, mm -hmm. that's my house. People had claims to ownership on that story. And I think in really wonderful ways, some people loved Nell Harper Lee for making their town famous and some other people didn't. And she resented the ways in which people felt they owned that story, even though she had created it. So I think she had a kind of tricky relationship to, to, to reality and verisimilitude. And to your point, you know, she cared about showing her face in town, but there was this also kind of complicated sense of, you know, people claimed the book was just their lives and reduced the artistry and aesthetic decision-making. And, you know, let's be honest, I think it's an extraordinary masterpiece, the kind of true artistry and genius she brought to it. I can tell you after interviewing a bunch of them, there are a lot of people who had the same childhood Nell Harper Lee did, and they never wrote To Kill a Mockingbird right. about it. <laughs> you know, they walked past Boo Radley's house. That's a real house on South Alabama Avenue. It terrified kids in town. Plenty of people can tell me that story about crossing the street, but none of them wrote that novel. And so I think it was just tricky for her the way that art related to life. Yeah, and I think there's this notion of, um, and I think a lot of writers feel this, that you know, you start into a project and sometimes you get halfway through it and you're like, I don't, the ends aren't coming together. I can't get these edges to meet up. Even if I could, it's going to be a terrible job. Should I abandon this? Should I walk away? Um, and sometimes the story that you think you're going after ends up not being the story. And so, you know, I wondered if you could kind of talk a little bit about how Harper Lee was kind of coming to this place where, you know, she fully intended to do this, to have her own to have her own stamp on something that would be like an in cold blood and then ultimately it not pulling together for her. 
Totally. It's really fun to talk to writers about this book because you've, you've tapped into the writerly anxiety. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, I mean, we have, and yet I'm, I'm not sure that that emotional crisis is a familiar one to people who've never tried to write about real people. And it was interesting to me, I have a couple of friends, I'm lucky to have a couple of kind of first readers in my life, and one of the friends who read the book basically said, you know, you're hard on the serial killer, you're hard on the lawyer, you're pretty easy on Harper Lee. She went to a town and made a bunch of promises and she never told people she'd given up. She never apologized, she never explained. You know, I think that you let her off kind of easy. And it was interesting, that was a journalist who's incredibly hard on herself. It's a mm. friend of mine who does a lot of narrative nonfiction, who does a lot of reporting, who's abandoned stories, to your point, or interviewed people for dozens of hours who don't make the final piece. And so she brought all of that guilt to this story. And, you know, I said, well, well, look, you know, it's, my friend's name is Francesca. I said, look, Francesca, like, ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of these people are just happy they met Harper Lee. They got a book signed. <laughs> like, right. they're not traumatized. And, you know, they've gone on with their lives and even to some extent kind of reveled in the mystery. But she felt in a book that's so concerned about ethics and the kind of duty and moral relationship we have to other people, it was important to point out that one of the deepest failures of Harper Lee's wasn't not writing the book, it was not communicating with the sources and the real people who had extended themselves to her. And I added a tiny bit more about it. She was right, I, I had really let her off. And I, I quoted from a letter Harper Lee wrote at the very end of um, her life and, um, or at the very end of the, the lawyer who's at the heart of the book, at the end of his life and near the end of hers, um, where you know she wishes him well and she talks about his grandkids, but she never mentions the Maxwell case. And she never mentions, I mean, even more troublingly, there's a fun kind of archival story at the end of my book about literally going to Alabama to get a briefcase that contains a lot of Harper Lee's research and materials. Well, the thing to know about that briefcase is she had taken it from that lawyer in 1977 and never returned it. <laughs> so that's basically like, we're on par with like material theft at this point, right? <laughs> it's not just like she took your story. She literally had documents that she had taken in good faith to work on her book that she had never returned. And I think it's tricky. And I thought about it a lot. You know, I had some older people I interviewed for the book, thinking of one man in particular who worked on um, a pulp wooding crew with the Reverend Maxwell. So we'd known him in this professional context. And I love him. He's great. I quote him in the book. He's, you know, acknowledged in the acknowledgments. But that guy would call me up every so often or text me and just basically give the spiel of like, I don't want to die before your book comes out. Like, are you writing it? And I felt like I was writing it pretty quickly, but I had the sense of, you know, three and a half years was not how long these people had been waiting. They right. had been waiting since 1977. Um, so it's, it's a really fun thing to think about. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think people are purely instrumental, even with journalists, meaning I think that it's possible people feel catharsis in talking about their lives, even if it never appears in print. And some of what they're doing is enacting an agency of their own where you are a passive recipient of some story. And having told you is not some kind of contract where they you know, feel a certain way. Um, the best example of that is probably one of the people I interviewed most often for the book, and he drove me around the town where this all happened. He drove me to Selma to interview somebody else. I've you know, spent a lot of time with him and his family. And he might reasonably have thought he was going to be like, you know, main the main character <laughs> or at some level, like a major character. And um, he's not, you know, he's in the book 
uh, I mention him. I quote some letters Harper Lee wrote him. But I never tell you about those wonderful afternoons where we sat talking about where he'd grown up or his family. I never tell you about him taking me around to all the cemeteries that became kind of the last scene in the book where I tell you where all these people are buried. I, I never tell you about, you know, him rooting through his files to find me the Harper Lee letters. I just, I never tell you about the hundreds of emails we exchanged. I just, there's so much I never tell you because narratively it doesn't work for me to be a character in the book, which reduces the possibility of him being a character. Mm. Um, so, and do I feel guilty? Well, not really. This is somebody who I know wanted this story to be told and made no demands on the kind of ratio of his participation or representation. Then that's the kind of sad truth of any reporting you do is never one-to-one -one in the book. Right. No one looking at it would ever guess, you know, to your point, Stephanie, there's somebody you interviewed for 20 hours who's not even mentioned. Right. You know, the expert on geology who you talk to about the geological structures that animate the story you're writing, but the poor geologist is never mentioned. Yeah. There's a, I think the difference, though, is with, with Harper Lee, and if I can say with myself, for all, the, for all of my dead half-thumb half stories, there is, when you say, <laughs> I've, it's hard to tell a stranger that, you failed, you mm. know? It's, it's that, that failure is really hard to admit, to look someone in the face and say, yeah, I know I've been talking to you about this for 20 years, but I'm, I'm a failure and I'm not gonna get this done. And that's just, it's easier to just avoid them, I think, a lot sure. of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what I love about, so the, the book is structured in, in three parts, and the first part is about the Reverend Maxwell and the murders, the second part is about his lawyer and the courtroom drama, and the third part is Harper Lee. What I love about that third section is the kind of intellectual question of, well, when are you a failure? Because here's the thing. Any one of those stories, you're alive and kicking and still writing. Right. Who's to say tomorrow you're not going to pick it back up? <laughs> and part of the optimism that people brought to the Reverend, which is what Harper Lee was calling her book, is it could be any day now. And at the end of her life, Harper Lee surpri surprised us all with a book. So why couldn't it have been the Reverend? And in some really wonderful ways, like why admit defeat until you're dead? Right. You never know when you'll come back to a story. I mean, I'm sitting on a story. I bet if you went and talked to some of the people I interviewed, it's a great story. I bet if you wouldn't talk to them, they'd say, "Ugh, I'm sure she just moved on. She wrote that whole book. She's like doing book reviews. What they don't know is how many times a day, not even a week, a day, I think about that story. And I think about the little bit of additional reporting I need to do. I'm not quite there. Hmm. They're right that they shared their part of it, and that part is done, and I locked it down two and a half years ago. But they don't know what I'm waiting for. And so it's very much not abandoned. I would never call them up and say I've given up. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, get back to me in 10 years. Maybe I should have, right? right? Like, yeah. it might just be pure hubris that I ever think I'm going to have enough proof to make it work. But it's certainly, that that's the kind of intellectual pleasure of the book, is thinking about, you know, what makes a failure and at what point in a kind of chronology or emotional reality do you declare it thus? Mm. Um, because, look, here's the thing. I told you that briefcase materialized in 2017. Harper Lee had taken it from the lawyer in 1977. Harper Lee's estate is sealed. The reverend might materialize in two years. Right. And I'm going to feel really foolish for having said, <laughs> I don't really think she wrote it. And, you know, I've got this correspondence which suggests she wrote part of it. Like, our inner lives are so wonderfully mysterious that, you know, whether you're a famous writer with a book that no one thinks you wrote or you're a deadbeat dad who actually saved every penny you could to leave an inheritance for the child you abandoned or, you know, the incredibly cantankerous member of your community who actually then, you know, 
gets mental health treatment and turns your life around and becomes the best volunteer in the local elementary school. No one is trapped in some narrative, whether it's failure or anything else. And the interesting thing about Harper Lee is for a lot of her life, she was trapped in a narrative of success, not failure. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say, I I find it hard to put failure and Harper Lee in the same sentence. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sure. I mean, but here's the thing in her own mind. And again, this kind of self-knowledge, she never wrote another book. So her daily life was very much preoccupied with this idea of being a failure. And I think one of the interesting things that happens by the end of her life is she makes her peace with one book. And to your point, can then really revel in what a book it was. Right. And and access what we have, the rest of us have thought all along, which is what an incredible book. And look at everything it did, not just in the lives of individual readers, but in the life of our culture and the ways that it's still useful and the ways that it's still inspiring and energizing and, you know, fodder for conversation. I just went and met with a high school group yesterday, 65 kids, two thirds of them have already read it. One third will be reading it this semester. And it's going to be the way they think about difference and diversity. It's er text for our culture. And so how, right, how could she ever be a failure? Right. All right, Stephanie, now this is the part of the show where you think Well, Casey, thank you so much for being on our podcast. It was a delight to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell Your Story.